we need more women from very different backgrounds working together for the same aim. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Numbers, an interview series brought to you by the United Nations Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. And in this interview series, we focus on women and peacemaking. Today, we're happy to be joined by Juanita Milan Hernandez, who is currently a member of the United Nations standby team of mediation advisors with a focus on security arrangements. She's also former lieutenant commander of the Colombian Navy. My name is Martin Vedish, and I'm joined here by Minji Song. Thanks, Martin. I'm so excited about today's episode. Juanita has unparalleled experience in the Colombia peace process, first serving for seven years as the advisor to the High Commissioner for Peace during the Havana Peace Talks, and then in 2014, serving as a member of the Gender Subcommission and the End of the Conflict Commission. After the actual signing of the Colombia Peace Accords, she was part of the tripartite ceasefire monitoring and verification mechanism, focusing on gender sensitivity, security guarantees, as well as the reincorporation of the FARC competence. And in this interview, Juanita shares her expert analysis on the peace process ending five decades of armed conflict, which killed more than 260,000 people and left millions internally displaced. She also shares personal recollections of being a woman representative, the narrative surrounding her leadership, and the importance of recognizing shared experiences and commonalities with other women from all sides of the political spectrum. A lot to unpack. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode. This is Juanita Millan Hernandez for DPPA Behind the Numbers. Juanita, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thank you for joining this series of interviews on personal insights to the WPS agenda. So let's start with the Big Bang, the 2016 September signing of the peace agreement. After years of negotiation between the Colombian government and the FARC, where all parties were white. This is etched in surely everyone's memory. Let us start with this. What were your emotions, your hopes, and how did you feel? Were you there? I was not in Havana when the signing, but I was in Cartagena when we did the, the official signing of the of the peace agreement. And it was a it was a great moment. A lot of emotions, mixed feelings. I cry a lot. It was a very nice ceremony with the FARC and the, the, the government delegation there. And a lot of civil society and everybody was there. So it was a it was a very important moment in my life. And one of the most important. And I felt like we have achieved a huge, a huge benchmark in Colombia. And very emotional, very, very important. The agreement and also its revision is recognized as history's most inclusive peace deal. Can you talk about this? And specifically, how did Security Council Resolution 1325 provide an opening? Yes, the, the Colombian Peace Agreement is recognized as one of the most inclusive in, in terms of uh, gender inclusion. And it took us a long time to get there. As you know, at the beginning, this was not planned by the parties. This was mostly because of the women of Colombia from civil society who start pushing the government delegation and also the FARC delegation in order to include more women and for women to be more visible during the negotiations. And then this uh, end up having two negotiators from the government delegation, two women, and two from the FARC delegation. And then in 2014, the parties created the Gender Subcommission in charge of uh, making the revision of the text 
of the agreement on the points that were already partially agreed and then making sure that the rest of the points of the agenda was uh, going to have the gender perspective. So it was a huge work between women from very different backgrounds, from the guerrilla movement, from the government, I was from the military forces and also civil society experts. And indeed, the 1325 resolution helped us a lot in having all of the support and the international support in uh, in being able to include the gender perspective into the into the agreement. It's a very strong integration of more than 100 provisions into the text. And uh, the three piece from the 1325 uh, resolution help us a lot in making this a reality in the Colombian peace agreement. Now, a lot of interviewers we talked to in this interview series highlight the importance of framing and language. What do you think changed in terms of references to women and gender in the context of the peace agreement? Some of the churches were uncomfortable with the writing, especially not with the women framing, but with the gender framing in the sense that they thought we were too open with the, especially with the LGTB framing in the text. So they wanted to kind of erase LGTB from the text and only mention women. But from our side, from government and the and the FARC delegation, this was wrong because the, the whole point of the of the peace agreement was to include everyone, regardless of, uh, with no discrimination at all. So what they wanted it was to erase any naming of or all the namings from LGTB, no mention from that. And um, so we managed to include and frame the issue a, a little bit different without giving up on, on what we have agreed on the inclusion of LGTB groups and communities. But instead, what we did was from the principles of the agreement, we include that discrimination was not going to be allowed during the implementation and that all people should be included into the implementation of the peace text. So instead of uh, naming it in uh, around 20 parts of the text, what we did was to include them from the beginning in the principles. In that sense, the, some of the churches felt that they were like uh, being heard but for us, we kind of achieved what we wanted in uh, by including this from the from the principles, and uh, yes, we had to give up in some some of the framings. But uh, it was a uh, an interesting interesting discussion on what was going to be included and how it was going to be framed. And here's another more general question, and it's a tough one. What do you think are the greatest lessons learned? Well, my biggest lesson is that we should have included this from the beginning. We did that during the process and thanks to the pressure from civil society organizations and especially women organizations. But this was not from the beginning. So my lesson is that we or process should try to include this from the process design, include how uh, participation and inclusion and and, and how it, this is going to work during the priest process from the design. This is one of the my biggest learnings. And also, perhaps we did a huge effort on, you know, the pedagogical process of explaining everybody and trying to bring everyone in bo- on board. 
but we failed in engaging the skeptics. I don't like to call them spoilers, but the people who were afraid of the peace process going on and also concerned, what I realize now is that we convinced the people that were already convinced that peace process was a good idea. And my learning here is that we should try to engage those people who are concerned or afraid or have some issues with the, with the process. Onwards to the next question. Now, you're the only woman from the military who participated in the peace negotiations. What were the elements that surprised you? What uh, comes back to your mind? At the beginning, the first trip that I made to Havana to work on the gender issues was with one of the experts group from civil society. When they find out that I was from the military forces, they kind of had a, a reaction on that. Like uh, it was the first female from the military forces that they met. So that was kind of surprising for me that this was the first time that they saw a, a military woman. And then they, they had a like a process for them to understand that I was on their side, trying to work for the same issues. Another issue was that at the beginning, when the FARC members knew that I was going to be in the gender team, they were kind of also skeptic and they thought I was going to do intelligence on them. So it took us a while, almost like a month or two months in order for us to to start working in, in a nicely environment. But after that, it was really, it, it was really good, the work. I ended up having a lot of uh, commonalities between the girls from the park and me, even more than with other women working in the peace process. So we had a, this great connection of being kind of uh, soldiers from different sides, but soldiers. So that helped us a lot in building a great relationship and work in this uh, joint effort of uh, building the gender perspective into the peace process. Even if you have, I mean, FARC members were my enemies, but working together, and I have to say working with women from, from FARC, showed me and taught me a lot of things. And one of the most important teachings was that uh, even if you're sitting with your enemy in front of you, then when you realize that you have suffered from similar things, exclusion, discrimination, or perhaps violence, and then you start seeing the person behind that, that enemy and commonalities that you have and the hopes, the similarity of hopes that you have for your country or your context, then is when you start realizing that uh, between women and very diverse women, you, we can achieve so much that if we took aside the political, the institutional or the religious factors and only focus on women struggling all around the world from the same things, we could do huge things together. So that we need more women from very different backgrounds working together for the same aim. Now, here's a more personal question. When your friends and family heard about you participating in the peace negotiations, how did they feel? What did they tell you? What did they think about your role in the peace process? Well, thank you for that question. My family was very proud of uh, me being part of the peace, peace process. But when I started to be on the news, and when they highlighted that I was the only 
women from the military forces in that team. Then it, it went a little bit rough because some of the people, even from, from my side, meaning the Navy or the Army, started to say not such a good things like, uh, who are you? Why they choose you? Are you going to betray uh, our institution? Things like that. So they, they were kind of, uh, it was difficult for them to understand my role there. And also when I did my first appearance, let's say, in a magazine, I received a lot of uh, nasty comments and even threats. I guess it was because it was the first time in history that we were doing this thing. And they were afraid, I guess. And then they couldn't understand why was I was sitting with, uh, I don't know, 15 people from the FARC. And they thought it was this was wrong. So at the beginning, I, I received a lot of... Uh, bad comments and uh, questioning why I was there and how could I put any input in the, especially in the ceasefire and the end of the conflict commission. So what I did was to, some of the newspaper asked me if I could write something. I did a couple of times. And then after two or three columns that I wrote, I decided to stop because people were being not nice about that. And they couldn't understand. So I, I started feeling like threatened and I thought it, this was not good for my family. And in a conflict like mine and a country like mine, this could be dangerous for me. So I stopped any writing or things like that in magazines or newspapers. So it was a little bit difficult. Yeah, I have to say. Kind of different from the male, my male colleagues, but for me, they, I, I receive a lot of uh, threats and comments, bad comments. In other interviews, you talk of the importance of international support to ensuring women's voices are heard and prioritized in negotiations and the implementation of peace agreements. Can you explain? Yes, I think the, the, the international community, the framework, the nine resolutions from uh, these women issues, women, peace and security agenda, all of this helps a lot in the sense when you're dealing with, uh, with an internal conflict, this framework, this support, this uh, pressure, you can say, helps a lot in, in making governments and also illegal groups understanding that this is a, a very important issue. And when you mention to parties that this is, a, for example, the 1325 resolution, that is a Security Council resolution, then they start uh, listening. It's not a matter of uh, women on the ground demanding things, but it's also an international priority that is uh, being implemented for the last 20 years. So then they start listening. And it's a, it's a way, it's a lot of, it's a help. I mean, I, I remember... In Sweden, when I was, uh, half of my, my training in 1325 is thanks to, to, to Sweden. So they were asking me how the, the investment of the, of the following years should be in Sweden and, and in Colombia, sorry. So I said, I mean, you have a femi feminist foreign policies. Why don't you ask the Colombian government that if you want the money, then you should really, really take the gender perspective seriously and things like that. So they help us a lot in making, understanding all of the parties, how important this is. 
And when you have this resolution and this framework, is is a little bit easier for you to navigate in this in these difficult arenas. You have a support, a, a superior support in this sense. We recognize that the most pressing gap to WPS agenda achievements is implementation. What is it like in the context of Colombia and? How do we ensure implementation, in your opinion? How do we monitor? Yes, implementation is always the hardest, and not in not only in the gender issues, but in, in, in general. And as you know, we have a very long and strong peace agreement with more with, with 578 provisions to implement. So in the case of Colombia, the agreement has um, a design that is already in place, all the architecture for the implementation. And yes, the gender issues and the gender provisions are going slower than the rest. And what I believe is that it it takes a lot of time and pressure to still, I mean, first you get the gender perspective into the peace text, but then you have to still pressuring and pressuring and advocating for the government and also for to implement the rest. And uh, in that sense, what I think is what happened in most of the countries and conflicts and processes is that uh, people tend to see that there are other issues more important than this one and then put the gender issues aside or to postpone them or to say we have to invest this money in security, we have to invest this money in justice, transitional justice. So then the issues of gender are, are putting aside or putting in postponed or things like that. So it is very important to keep this pressure on on the implementation architecture and the institutions, but also it's a matter of uh, knowledge and and training and and teaching. In our case, most of the people didn't know, especially in, in government, didn't know much about gender. So the first thing that we suggest was to have a very broad and an inclusive gender teaching in order for them to be able to implement them. But this is expensive, it's a huge state. So this is going very slow in that sense. So the first thing that we said is if we are requesting for all the members of the government and the institutions to start implementing this 122 provisions, they need to understand what is that and why they are doing this and why this will give a lot of benefits for the process. But first they need to understand what this is about. And this is very, very important, but it takes a lot of time. And uh, usually when when you have some issues with resources, then money starts going somewhere else. So it's, uh, it's, it's being implemented but very slowly in comparison with the rest of the of the issues. And until I was in, in the government, we tried to do our best effort to, to, to include more people working in, in these issues in the new architecture so they will be able to implement it and also to monitor that they were doing it. The Colombian government created a national high-level place in which they're monitoring the implementation from the government inside the government on the gender issues. And this is this is working well, but still with the less results than the rest of the implementation. 
And what can the UN do to put pressure on this? I think the best way to to engage people in, in the gender or to make them put the gender glasses, as we always say, it's important for them to see the benefits of gender inclusion. So if UN or the Security Council will, as in this uh, exercise that we're doing, it is not just a matter of numbers, but numbers count. So it's very important to show people and government and counterparts the benefits of gender inclusion. This is, you cannot forgive that women are half of the population and without that half of the population, you are not going to have a, an inclusive or a comprehensive law or text of a peace agreement or project. And it's also a matter of rights. So I think they should, have more, the most difficult parts are including or implementing the gender provisions, especially in the security issues, in SSR, in security sector reform, in DDR, in ceasefires. All of these um, aspects of uh, peace processes are almost male-dominated. There are very few women working in these issues because they're always been isolated and not... Uh, they haven't let a lot of women work in these issues. And, but it's also because we have few numbers in military forces or police forces or peacekeeping missions. So in order to increase this, this integration of gender perspective into implementation, there's also a need to increase the numbers of women working in these fields that are mostly male-dominated. Beginning by, for example, appointing more women as uh, special envoys from the UN, appointing more chief mediators in the UN uh, negotiations and uh, supporting more women to be more visible. I'm sure there are a lot of or thousands of uh, very capable women ready to work in these fields, but they're invisible to the system. So it's important to start visibilizing more women in these issues especially in the issues that are usually male-dominated. And I guess we have to start from home, meaning the UN. Now, as many subscribers of this interview series know, now comes our most favorite part, the rapid-fire questions. And the first question is the following one. If you could look at any data on women, peace and security, what would it be? Number of women in uh, peacekeeping missions. I would like to see data in which people can know if the presence of women in peacekeeping missions has decreased the number of gender-based violence or sexual violence, and if it's really meaningful and uh, effective. And I'm sure it is, but I would like to have those numbers in order for us to be able to include more women in, the, in these missions. And here comes the second rapid-fire question. In one sentence, what does meaningful participation mean to you? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> Insightful, that uh, has an important outcome. And here's the last question of our interview. Which developments do you hope to see for the Women, Peace and Security agenda in the future? Well, I would like to see more women in leading, peace, leading peace processes. I would like to see more chief mediators, more special envoys, 
more women signing peace agreements, more women in politics, in leadership roles, and more women in security sectors, more female in females in police forces and in military forces around the world. I'm sure that if we had more women in these sectors, we would have less conflicts and less uh, corruption and less gender violence in these sectors. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Behind the Numbers with Juanita Milan Hernandez. Stay tuned for more episodes with leading women in international peacemaking.